0: Welcome to podcast number 178 of my favorite detective stories. Today's date is September the 13th, 2022, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is Mariah Fredericks. Mariah was born and raised in New York City, where she still lives today with her family. She's a graduate of Vassar College with a BA in history. Her novel, Crunch Time, was nominated for an Edgar in 2007. Jane Prescott series set in the 1910's New York has twice been nominated for the Mary Higgins Clark Award. Her next novel, The Lindbergh Nanny, will be published in November of 2022. This was a darn good interview, and you can't miss it. Welcome to My Favorite Detective Stories. I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Come sit by my campfire as we listen to crime fiction writers talking about their flawed fictional detectives. I will alternate weekly between award-winning and best-selling authors with debut authors who have overcome all the obstacles to get their first novel out into the world. This episode is brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea six book series and my upcoming Gwendolyn strong, small town, cozy mystery series to learn more Go to www.johnhoda.com, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com, and join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marsha O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free. Hi, Mariah. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, John. I'm so glad to be here.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate you did that. So uh, how's the weather there in the flight plan of LaGuardia Airport today?
1: It is really gorgeous. It's like 70 degrees. It's clouding up a little bit, but, uh, we can still see blue sky. Very nice. How is it by you?
0: Oh, uh, up the Long Island Sound from you and just a train ride from New York City. Uh, we're doing great. Uh, we're, uh, it's a sunny day. Like you said, sixties, little breezy, but you know what? It's, it's telling me that spring is here. Yeah. And that, that's the thing that I think that I can say. I could write about this day in one of my, Novels, I'm sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great day up here and I'm really looking forward to our uh, podcast. You've done some great stuff and I'm going to wait until the end to really uh, mention the thing that is exciting, I think, to everybody. Uh, but, um, it's not to, not to say that the rest of your career isn't exciting, but you, I think you really got the tiger by the tail and I want to keep my listeners in suspense until the end. After all, we do write mystery and suspense, right? Absolutely.
1: So, you need the cliffhanger.
0: That's it. So, uh, but before we get there, let's just talk about how you got started on your writing journey, and tell me uh, about your uh, your uh, how you got from there to here.
1: Um, well, I was that kid who really always wanted to write. That was basically always the game plan, um, unless I was going to be a boxer. But since I'm only five, I wasn't going to work. Um, you know, I wrote for the school newspaper, um, and I had the plan that when I was in college, I would write my first big novel and I would get out of college, and I would obviously publish it with you know random house or penguin or they're now the same thing <laughs> um and you know my career would be launched as a great american author mm-hmm. so that's how it works yep um feed it at every party
0: first... and uh, you know the uh everybody would want you for book signings and throw rose petals at your feet yes
1: exactly i mean margaret atwood would be hanging out together mm-hmm. and first novel got rejected. Second novel got rejected. Third novel got rejected, and I got two rejection. Le- and the third novel was a book about celebrity obsession. And I thought, if I can't sell a novel about celebrity obsession in the nineteen nineties, then oh, yeah. you know I don't know. Forget it. So I was feeling really sorry for myself, and I went and sat in a bathtub, fully clothed, in the dark. Um, <laughs> there was no water in the bathtub. Oh, okay. And my husband, who also works in, he works in children's publishing, he knocked on the door after a while and he said, you know, I think this has lasted long well enough, the pity party. Um, come on out. Let's talk about it. And he said, you know, have you ever thought of writing for younger readers? And, you know, because my husband works in children's books, he takes them very, very seriously. And whenever somebody said, oh, I'd like to write a children's book, you know, how hard could it be? He was always really offended. And he was like, it, it actually is very hard. It takes a particular gift. So I knew if he was suggesting that I try it, that I kind of had to try it. It, w- it was a, a compliment. So I sat down and I started, you know, you start mining your past for horror stories, which aren't hard to find in the high school years. Um, and I started writing about, uh, you know, my best friend in ninth grade, have a boyfriend. and I didn't. And I was jealous. And that became my first novel, uh, The True Meaning of Cleavage. Um, ha!
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a great, that's a great, <laughs> that's a great title. I hope I'm not the only person to give you a guffaw for that.
1: No, no. And it's, it was my editor's choice. He said, well, I had some terrible title, Truth and Consequences. And he said, no, nope, about Trumini of Cleavage. And I said, I think I have to ask my mother about how she feels about going into the bookstore and asking for that. Yeah. Um, And it was a, it was a nice success. Um, You know, partly I think because of the title. (laughs) Um, And so then I wrote a second YA novel and then I wrote uh, my third YA novel. And, what was really interesting is with the third one, um, you know, I, uh, I was pregnant at the time. Um, I gave birth to a very large baby and, um, I was just sort of at that new mother stage of, I don't think I'm ever going to have a life again. I don't think I'll ever be able to do anything coherent again. Uh, cause I haven't slept in 27 days. Mm-hmm. And, um, the mystery writers of America sent me an email and they said, you know, we know you think your novel crunch time is a young adult novel, but we also think it's a mystery novel. Um, and would you like to come to the Edgars? Cause we've nominated it for young adult mystery.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: Yeah, no, I was totally stunned. And the reason they picked it was it's, it's a book about four teenagers who take the SAT and it's told from all four perspectives and one of them cheats. Okay. And you have to figure out who who cheated. Um, so I went to the Edgar awards and, you know, I was just thrilled to be out of the house. You know, truly <laughs> I, you know, I didn't win and I didn't care. I was thrilled. Right. And I really fell love with the mystery community that night there there's something you know the young the kids book community is wonderful but they take themselves very seriously they you know they are speaking to the future and there was something really battered and self-deprecating and humorous about mystery writers and I thought wow you know this this is what I want to do these are my my people um So from then on, I was I didn't stop writing young adult right away, but I was very focused on sort of gearing more towards uh writing mysteries.
0: You found your peeps.
1: After, I totally found my peeps.
0: After you found your voice, after. Uh, but you can't take away from those three first novels because they were the for lack of a better word, they were the fertilizer for which allowed you to to sprout. In the totally. uh, in the new ones. And uh, without those, you would and without the grit and determination of having them go out there into the world and not receive a like uh, the the rose petals at your feet uh, response reception. Right. Then you right. uh, then you had, then you thought about a pivot. And uh, but yet it was a pivot that you felt that you could do um, and you could still have a genuine voice. Do I, do I understand that right? Did I feed that back to you correctly?
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. And one of the, I think it is really important to, cause I made another big change later in my career. Um, and any and change, I don't like change. I'm like most people in that, mm-hmm. but it has always worked out. Um, so. And also with young adult, I felt I was writing books that I enjoyed. I realized I was when, when I was trying to write the big serious adult novel with those first three, I was trying to sort of emulate, you know, Bret Easton Ellis and Thomas Johnowitz and Jay McInerney, and what I realized was I don't particularly care for those books. Why am I trying to write them? Um, so
0: after falling in love with the mystery uh, community, and and your 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 baby's gotten a little older now. What's? Uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> he's sixteen.
0: <laughs> okay, so uh, continue, please.
1: So. So then I, I continued writing Young Adult um, for a while. And in the midst of writing, um, I, I guess it had to be my last Young Adult novel, um, two lines popped into my head one day where I will tell it and I will tell it badly. And those went on to become the first two lines of A Death of No Importance. And for me, a book always starts with voice and the character, um, the detective in this case. And I listened because I knew this was not a teenage voice. It was too um, polite. Um, It was a little formal. And, you know, I thought, okay, what story do you have to tell me? Um, And the character didn't, didn't speak up right away. She didn't give me the whole story. Um, So I went back to working on the novel that was actually paid for and due in a month. Um, But she kept coming back to me. um, And I started thinking of her as Jane Prescott. And I started thinking about what kind of story does she have to tell? And there was something defiant about those first two lines. You know, I'm going to tell it. And then she immediately apologizes. So I thought, this is someone who isn't used to being heard and who's have a secret that they've held on to for a long time. And um, it could be because I had a, a, a cleft palate and a speech impediment as a child, but I'm always fascinated by the people that sort of stand off to the side, watching and listening, who no one really pays attention to. Um, And so I got the idea that this was a servant, um, a maid who knew the truth about a famous crime of the century. And she knew that the person who had been convicted of it um, was innocent. And she was now going to reveal the truth many years later. Um, So I had to pick um, an era for my ladies made to exist, and I knew I didn't want to go back in the far reaches of time. I mean, for one thing, I wanted to write about New York because I was born in New York. I've always lived in New York, um, and I wanted her to be mobility because, you know, as a detective, you you need to be able to get around and find things out. Um, so that brought me. To, you know, late 19th, early 20th century in the Gilded Age. And a lot of mysteries writers love the Gilded Age because it's so gorgeous. Um, I love the Gilded Age because it's so violent, Um, you know. Americans really are at odds on so many different levels. You have you know, rich versus poor. You have native versus immigrant. Um, women are demanding a space in the public realm. You have uh, owner versus labor. Um, so you have a lot of terrific uh, motives um, going on. And so I started writing the book sort of in my spare time. And I sent it off to my then agent um uh, and I said, "You know, I kind of like this. I know it's not for kids, but I like it. What do you think about it?" And she showed it to one editor who said, "Well, yeah, it's good, but it's not gonna sell a hundred thousand copies, so it's a pass from me and I said, well, I don't know if that really has to be the standard. And she said, yeah, well, I'm done with it. (laughs) So I was like, oh, okay. I'm glad you advocated for that one.
0: So she she passed on it is what you were saying. She
1: passed on it, yeah. And my agent said I'm not going anywhere else with it because she was a big young adult agent. Adult mystery wasn't really her thing. So I sent it off to a friend of mine who was an agent. Um And I knew Mystery was her thing. And I said, you know, if you tell me to put this in the drawer, I'll put it in the drawer. And she said, I got to tell you, like, the market is terrible, but I kind of love it. I think you should keep going with it. And so I finished it and we called it a death of no importance and we sent it to Uh, a bunch of houses and minotaur god bless them uh finally took it and it went out in the world and it was uh reviewed in the new york times which for me i was like okay that's all i really need in my life um and then it did get nominated for an edgar um so i got to go back to the edgars which was finally Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so that was huge fun Mm
0: -hmm. and you won
1: no, I didn't uh, win.
0: But, Okay. But you got to uh, go back again <laughs> and. Good
1: uh, mask on. I was, I
0: was happy. <laughs> uh, so you got a New York Times review. That is so cool. That is, and that, that's like a gold stamp. Yeah. That's, a, that's a gold badge. Come on. Getting nominated for the Edgars and then a New York Times review. Those are, those are bad. Those are medals you can wear proudly. So
1: I, yeah.
0: And you know, the, the, the publisher saying, well, I don't think I can sell a hundred thousand books. Uh okay well I I would have sat, sat I would have been satisfied with seventy five thousand but hey I I, I can <laughs> under, I can understand there might be a a bar there that has to be reached you know but uh I'd love to know how many it sold but it, since <laughs> yeah. I don't think
1: she's probably right about that one but uh but when we get to the end of the interview I'll uh, we can discuss further okay sure. Um, So All
0: right. So um so now you're off and running with Jane Prescott. And of course your minotaur says, uh, do you have a series?
1: (laughs) Well that was yes, it was funny. When they called me in to discuss buying the first book, they said, um, would you consider making this a series? And I said, Are you kidding? I'll write this for the rest of my life. If you you know, Mm. if you buy them, I'll I'll write them. And so well, and, and
0: you weren't just being commercially savvy. You were, you knew that you had a tiger by the tail, that this was a universe that you didn't mind sitting around in. And this is a place where the dialogue and the, and the setting and the, and the time period was something that, you know, you could, you could get interested in doing day in and day out. It's not like, you know, you, you, wrote a one-off and never wanted to go back to that, uh, novel or that character again, right?
1: No absolutely yeah. I was totally thrilled I, I was a history major uh at Vassar, so I love history and next to mystery, historicals are my favorite okay and there was something you you know every once in a while a writer gets really lucky with a character and it's just like a blessing from the universe and I feel that way with Jane um you know she. She's. I can do things with that voice and that character and that perspective that I haven't been able to do with my earlier work. Um, and she's just a thrilling, a wonderful companion and a thrilling head to be in. So yeah, I'm. I'm a very happy writer when I'm writing Jane.
0: Now I apologize. I haven't read Jane. Uh, uh, third person or first person? How do you? How do you?
1: she's first person uh, present um, or past past ah. each of the books um, each of the books opens with and closes with Jane as a woman in her 90s uh, looking back from the 1980s which was sort of our more modern Gilded age before our current Gilded age
0: okay um,
1: so you have a present perspective on the past and then she slips into uh, her story that book and each of the books they start in 1910 and they go year by year okay. um, to, hopefully to 1918 you know in the, the Great War, War. Yeah. Um, and in each of the books I like to include a signature I like to base the murder thematically around a signature event in New York history so for that year so for 1911 it's the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire for 1913, it's the Armory Show. Um, and then in the latest one, Death of a Showman, we're in the summer of 1914, and James' ex boyfriend is opening his first Broadway musical. So the whole thing is set in the theater milieu, but it is the summer of 1914. The Archduke has been assassinated, and when the war uh was announced. It was announced in the Times Square building in Times Square. Um they put in the window announcing a war and crowds gathered. Um and uh so that's how the book ends.
0: Okay. And the middle the middle book, because you kind of skipped over it, you said where you know what what was its uh Setting, But you didn't give us a title in the middle book.
1: Oh, the first book is uh, no, A Death of No Importance. And then the second book is Death of a New American, okay. which focuses on immigrant issues okay. uh, in the wake of the Titanic. Mm-hmm. And then the third book is Death of an American Beauty, uh, which looks at art and clothing and department stores. Um, and then the fourth one is Death of a Showman.
0: Gotcha. So that's great stuff. Um, so Thank you. and you and you talked about not not m- minding spending time in Jane's head, and uh, I, I. But you also mentioned about and I asked you the question about what how it was written, and you said first person past. Um, I've been asked by a, uh, a person in my critique group if I would consider taking uh, my first person present. Novel that is the subject of the critique and turn t- talking about it in first person past. So I think hmm. I, I know that there's going to be a novel coming up very soon on my Kindle. Um, and it's going to be your first in the Jane series because you do, you do it in first person past. And I would love right. to see how you do that. So, oh. uh, I'm going to study uh, that novel and, uh, and use it for my own benefit because I I've never written in first person past. And I'd like to see what that feels like, you know, how try that, try that clothing on for once, you know, so, <coughs> see what that does. So, but anyway, um,
1: it's interesting because I wrote all the young adult books were first person present because everything is so immediate when yeah. you're young. Oh, yeah. There's no room for perspective or reflection or distance. Um, so, I mean, you might be interested to find like the room that speak past gives you. Um, it can be just as um, fast paced and tense. Um, but it gives you some room for reflection, which I do like. Okay,
0: and that's and that's a thing that uh, my critique uh, partner, one of my critique partners, talked about. And I had written my entire uh, Marsh O'Shea six book uh, crime procedural, uh, police procedural in third person close. So I was not uh-huh. not first person. So mm-hmm. so I think that I think what you're telling me, if I may be so bold. Is that mm-hmm. it's a that first person past is a nice compromise between the immediacy of first person present and uh, with the uh, the ability for a little bit more uh, uh, room uh, in third person past. So it seems like it's a it's a nice compromise between the two. Would I be yeah. fair, would I be fair to say that?
1: Yeah, and okay. you can. Set the scene a little more easily, I think. In the past, you can confide in the reaver. You know, there's something with the Jane Prescott books. I always try and create a very intimate feel. Of to, just starting with the first one, of it's a slightly confessional tone um, that she's sharing with the reaver. Um, I'm always struck by. Um, You know, in Shakespeare's Richard III, why are you on the side of this horrible, horrible person? And that's because from the very beginning of the story, he brings the audience in and he says, I'm going to tell you what's going on. And it just creates that bond uh, between the reader and the narrator.
0: Gotcha. Now, uh, tell me about Jane, uh, this flawed fictional detective. Uh certainly it's a difficult time period for a woman. It's in, in mm-hmm. the class struggles that are going on and in the gender time, you know, genders of a, you know, over a century ago, gender issues. Um and uh um, her occupation at the time didn't really place her in uh, in a position that uh like you said people would sit up and listen, you know? Right. So so tell me a little bit about Jane. What makes her tick?
1: Jane arrived um, in America from Scotland, as much of my family did, um, in 1890. And she was her mother um, and sister. Um, her mother gave birth on the journey and uh, did not survive. And neither did her sister. Oh my! And yes,
0: she she and- she goes on a boat with a pregnant mother and comes off an orphan.
1: She well, she comes off with her father. Oh, okay, um, I'm sorry. And and she's three years old, and they are to meet up with the father's brother, her uncle, and the father is so overwhelmed that he basically puts a note on Jane's coat saying, Please take this child to the Reverend Tevin Prescott and vanishes. So one of Jane's Core experiences is arriving in a new land and kind of trying to hold on to her father's hand as he walks away from her. Um, now, thanks. So it's, it's, it's a, a, an, a sort of a core feeling of abandonment oh, and yeah. need for your people. Where is my place? Where am I safe? Who's going to take care of me? Who am I going to take care of? Um so her uncle shows up, and he's sort of a, he's, you know, well, he's a Scot, and he's a minister, um, but he's a little unorthodox in that he runs a refuge for women who have uh, been sex workers who want to start a new life with training in other fields, so he runs this refuge on the Lower East side, and that's how Jane grows up, um, in this house of women and this one sort of distant relative. He takes care of her, but he's not demonstrative at all. And when she's 13, the, his big patron, say Mrs. Arms, though, um, head of one of the oldest families in New York, says, I actually don't think this is a great place for your niece to be a young woman, I think she should come and work for me as a maid in my house. So that sort of launches Jane's career as a, uh, as a servant and she's working in this very wealthy house. And at one point she notices that um, one of Mrs. Armslow's relatives is stealing from her. Um, so she gains the trust of her employer and, um, and she starts sort of developing her sharp, her very sharp eyes. Um, but at the beginning of a death of no importance, Mrs. Armswell has died. So Jane needs a job and she gets set up with the Nouveau-Riche-Frenchley family. And this is in 1910. And they're sort of a comically wealthy, clueless family that doesn't know anything about New York society. She actually knows this world much better than they do. Um, they have two daughters, Charlotte, who's very pretty and very ambitious, and Louise, who's catatomically shy and overwhelmed by the very sharky social milieu that she finds herself in. And Jane feels immediately... Protective, she thinks. Oh, hey, you know, maybe, maybe this is my family. Maybe these are my people. Um, and she really warms to Louise, and and their their relationship is sort of a, a bedrock of the four novels. How it develops and grows. Um, so. When she sort of, she literally falls over the body in the first one. Charlotte gets engaged to a very wealthy young man who ends up murdered on the floor of the library. The night the engagement is to be announced. Um, And so, uh, Jane, again going into protective mode, um, Charlotte is um, accused of the crime in the tabloid press. Um so Jane has to find out who actually killed him, and that's how her career as a detective begins
0: and a and a little different or actually i'm 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 saying that tongue in cheek a lot different than uh agatha christie's uh settings in that uh I don't know of a single uh Agatha Christie novel where um the help for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. The right. help solves the the mystery. I don't. I'm sorry. I mean, I don't, I didn't ask you to read thirty. I got the Christie novels before <laughs> you came on. But if uh, one of my listeners wants to tell me that, oh no, no, you're mistaken, John, and I'll say, of course, I'm mistaken. I'm always mistaken. But I can't remember a time when that ever happens. And yet, we we um, we get to um, a very recent movie, Knives Out. Where um the help actually mm-hmm. actually is one of the sleuths, you know. Again, so that's kind of neat uh, how that that works. And right. I use I use that word the help in a in sort of a derogatory term because you know it's I'm not saying anything derogatory about Jane or or what they did. I'm just saying it you know in no. that in the sense of the way what the reader expectation or uh, what the author expectation of writing the novel would be. You wouldn't expect this kind of Keen interest, or uh, understanding, or sleuthing skills from uh, uh, the help. The help, right? Exactly. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Well, they have accessed all your secrets. If you think about it, absolutely. Um, And nobody takes them seriously. Nobody notices them, right? Really. So the the conceit is um, what the person can observe when nobody's paying attention Mm -hmm. to that. And at one point, Jane says, if you're going to, if it's your job to keep the silverware polished, you have to have a sharp eye for tarnish. Um, If you're going to take care of the clothes, you have to see the wrinkles. Um, You have to see the dirt. Um, So, it, it's her job, really, to look for what's wrong and to fix it. Hmm.
0: Okay, I like that. I like that, uh, that explanation. That's really cool. And uh, she's now applying it to uh, how um, how it's not how an innocent woman, Charlotte, has been mm-hmm. accused of a murder in uh, that that time of um,
1: in nineteen ten.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not not exactly uh uh where where uh she's going to get a lot of sympathy in that situation. Uh so okay. So I really enjoy how you explained uh Jane now and does she grow from book to book it, and 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 is there a, a character arc that goes along with the series or I mean does she ever find her father again? I mean, I know I'm asking mm. all these questions. <laughs>
1: um yes. I mean, I I wrote the book. I, somebody asked me recently, well, why did you make Jane single? And I said, well, um, you know, A, a lot of the people who worked in service were single because once you have your own home to take care of, it's assumed that's where you should be. Um, but also because, you know, we're in New York at what, at the dawn of the American century. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a very unequal time. It's a violent time, a cruel time. But it's also a time of just unbelievable, abundant, crazy energy and optimism. And I wanted a character who could embody that sense of like, wow, you know, look at the world, look at what I might be in the world because it's a time of such change. Um, You know, women are marching for the vote um, and, you know, People are moving up um you know economically, and so Jane does the assumption is that we are going to follow Jane as she sort of grows up with her with her country um and follow these characters through their you know triumphs, their losses, their marriage deaths, births, all of that kind of thing um she gets. I mean, any amateur sleuth has to get a little more savvy and self-aware that they are solving crimes over the course of a series. It can't be a shock right. <laughs> um, in the same way. Um, so it, in the later books, I started to sort of play off like the the reality that Jane works for, very lovely and naive people. And at one point, somebody says to her, Do you know how to call a policeman? She's like, Yes, I know how to call a policeman. Um, so she, she starts to own her, her role as a detective an enforcer of justice, um, more than she did in the earlier books. It's interesting at the, um, With the original conclusion of death of no importance, um, the murderer got away with it. And my agent said, I don't like that ending. There has to be a punishment. And I said, I don't know that it's really believable that a lady's maid with a lack of economic and social clout could enforce justice. Like, who's going to believe her? And she said it is absolutely essential that the reader see Jane as somebody who is capable of delivering um, justice. Um, and I, I take that role, I take that charge very seriously. I really try and figure out how to make that happen in the
0: book. So I just want to take a moment there because uh, I'm self-published, which, you know, you're traditionally published. I'm self-published. My person that would tell me that would be my developmental editor, you know? Uh-huh. So in other words, if I had given you, if I had given, um, the manuscript, the rough draft to my developmental editor and said, you know, this is what it is. And and if my editor came back and said, well, no, you really need to give the reader, um, an ending that has, uh, uh, your protagonist solving the the mystery, solving the crime, uh, bringing justice forth, uh, mm-hmm. I would, I would, I would uh, probably have uh, a little bit of. I would probably have a little bit of pushback, but just the way you explained mm-hmm. it to me now, um, your agent must have had a good eye for what you were writing, otherwise uh, she 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 would not invest in you, and but yet. Has enough um, savvy to realize that no, no, that doesn't ring true. You need to do this, and 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 it came from a place of of experience as well as genre specificity, um, and almost a trope. And I would say, um, I'm sure you probably had some discussion back and forth with your agent, but in the end, oh, I yes. probably I'd, pro- I'd probably do with what you did, and that would be. To uh if it was the way you just explained it to me, if that's the way it was explained to you, I would say if my agent explained that to me that way, I'd have to, you know, go lie fully uh, clothed in a bathtub for a couple hours <laughs> and, and then come to the realization that my my developmental editor was right and that I I, I have to now do my editor proud by coming up with the best damn ending I could with my protagonist solving the crime and solving the mystery. So, and I guess that's what you had to do.
1: (laughs) You know, we came to a compromise with the first book and then the, the consequences got heavier and more Jane centric as the series went on. But, you know, I said to her, it's not, I think only 50% of murderers actually are successfully prosecuted in this country. Um, And I said, you know, I want to maintain a certain level of realism, even in the genre of historical fiction, uh, historical mystery, which can be, you know, a little romantic, a little sentimental. But I said, the whole idea here is to look at violence and class issues realistically Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't want to make it too cute. And she said, yes, but it's because we only managed to successfully prosecute um, half the murders in this country. Maybe that's why people are so hungry for stories where it does turn out. Yeah. um, All right. And and that did make a certain amount of sense to me. Mm.
0: No and and I still work I continue to work as a licensed private investigator. Uh I work oh. uh, yeah, I work as on uh, pr- primarily on wrongful conviction exoneration cases. And oh, that's so cool. W- it is. And my work is not necessarily to find out who did it, but to point to the police and to the uh, and to the judges in the uh, appellate hearings later on that my client didn't do it. <laughs> so, right. yeah, there, yeah, there is a dead body or dead bodies. And I'm being honest in a real, real, in a real life setting, there people died, but not at my client's hand. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it wasn't my job to figure out who the hell did it. It was just that my client didn't do it. So, uh, right. I could, I could see that, um, I could see that uh, push and pull between yourself and your agent. So anyway, uh, but in the end, you guys came to a resolution and, uh, and, but it did, it did Again. set, it did set the tone for how, how she was going to be able to solve, uh, further mysteries in the next couple novels, correct?
1: Yes. I mean, the Benchleys are a wonderfully hapless family and somehow those bobbies always <laughs> <laughs> just turn up. Um, and, you know, of course, one of the, challenges with an amateur sleuth is giving them the drive to solve the murder. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause why, if, unless you're getting paid, why on earth would you risk, you know, life limb and, you know, spend your time tracking this down. Um, so I generally have to have somebody close to Jane either implicated or threatened um, in the, uh, in the second book, death of a new American, um, a young Italian woman, a nanny, uh,
0: in the uh, household,
1: um, in the household, um, Louise is getting married and, um, the family that she's marrying into their nanny is found dead, um, in the nursery. And it's supposed to be a, a, kidna a botched kidnapping and, Jane feels, first of all, Jane feels protective because this could derail the society wedding of the year. So she kind of look out for Louise on that score. But she also finds the family sort of weirdly detached from this young woman's death. Like, it's just a servant. Like, it's sad. But so, you know, there's sort of class um, solidarity involved when she decides to really find out who murdered this young woman. Um, in the third one, her her cranky uncle is the suspect in a series when um, women of his refuge are murdered. He's the suspect, so that brings Jane into that case. Cool. Um, and yeah, that was that was a, that was an interesting one to write because I got to delve more into her family history and trauma. And then the fourth one, because it uh, it is the setting is a Broadway musical. I wanted it sort of light and romantic, and you know, slightly um, slightly comical. So um, in that one, her ex boyfriend is the chief suspect when the producer of his show, who's an absolutely horrible human being, is found murdered.
0: Played by Zero Mostel.
1: Played by Zero Mostel. Was like, <laughs> there, there was one. It was funny. There was a. Mur- a victim where somebody my editor said you've made him very very unattractive and i said yes well i want him to by harvey weinstein she said (laughs) (laughs) it's a little obvious could you i just don't think you should go in that direction so it's like okay (laughs) yeah
0: i got you no but uh I know we were just joking, but uh, uh, I'm sure Zero Mostel's a wonderful individual. He just played uh, a uh, a really slimy producer in the producers with Gene Wilder. <sighs> what was uh, and he
1: would have been fabulous as, as Sydney Sidney Warburton is oh, the man. Uh, producer who gets <laughs> so yummy women as it, Zero Mostel is sort of lovable. You would feel bad if he ended up murder you know mens toilet, know. wouldn't you?
0: Yeah, that's true no, but the interesting thing was. Uh, what you said to me about the difference between three and four was uh I, I've done that with my novels where I have a really serious and really mm-hmm. dark novel and I just can't write another set of body drops like that again. I need to write something yeah. a little bit lighter, a little bit easier on the brain, something that gives my also gives me a breather, but gives my readers a breather because mm-hmm. I just can't keep writing that dark constantly. I mean, there is some social redeeming things going on in the world and I just can't keep writing that way. But anyway, I digress. Um, So, and, and, and Jane is still with uh, Minotaur. I mean, she's uh, still with that publishing house or how's that worked out?
1: Jane uh, is still with Minotaur. um, But for the next book, um, I was like, yeah, let's go with Jane five, a tale of two fathers getting to your, point about fathers Mm. and they said actually what we really like you to do um because it was covid and it's, it's it was a little hard for some series during covid okay um to make noise because people weren't going to bookstores they said we'd love you to do a historical standalone i thought oh man a standalone because you know for me the whole reason the idea was that you come to these series for Jane Prescott. You come to, because she's she's funny and she's kind and she's optimistic and, you know, um, an open-hearted person. But with a standalone, it really has to be the event, the subject, the topic that, you know, somebody looks at it in an airport and says, yeah, I've always wanted to read more about that um, because, you know, I'm not Lee Child or Louise Penny where somebody's going to go, ooh, the new Mariah Fredericks. I got to buy that.
0: Mm. Um,
1: not so yet. for a long not time. Yet.
0: Not yet. Not
1: yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not,
0: not, not, not <laughs> but not yet. Yeah.
1: There we go. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> um, so – you know, I was really racking my brain. I thought, you know, what historical event can I peg this on? You know, you can't do murder on the Titanic. Um, you know, you can't, you know, the murder of the Romanovs. It, you know, we kind of know how that one ended and who did it. Um, so I was pitching all these ideas to my agent. And she was like, eh. they're all very dark um, and very depressing. And, but she, she hung in there with me. And then one morning, I thought, hold up. Who was the nanny for the Lindbergh baby? Because I remembered in Murder in the Orient Express, you know, it starts off the 1974 version with that fabulously creepy montage of, you know, the, the kidnapper entering the house. And the first person you see is the nanny tied up in the chair and struggling. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, was that a real person? Did that person exist? And she did exist. And her name was Betty Gow. And she was a young Scots woman, um, about 28 years old. And she was, as I say, young. She was attractive. She was a suspect. Her boyfriend was a suspect, um, she was the last person to see Charlie alive. Um, she identified his body. Um, and she was involved Ace at a single point. And I called my agent and I said, "Limburg, Nanny. And she said, do I have to propose any of the other ideas you've given me? And I said, no, I think this one is it. Um, so that's
0: how that story uh, started to get written. Yeah. And when I first said hello to you at, after we got the uh, our tech issues, you know, cleaned up, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> I just gushed about that name and that title. And uh, I just thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. I really did. And, <laughs> uh, and I, went, I went as far as saying that, um, you know, is this being shopped? to the, uh, for, for, um, uh, for movie, for movie rights. And you said, nah, something like kind of, you were teasing me a little bit. So you want to just, I know it's still coming out and, and and your release date for the Lindbergh Nanny is when?
1: Oh, it's uh, November 15th. Uh, So it's still quite a ways away.
0: And uh, do, is there a pre-release opportunity yet?
1: Yes, it is available for pre-order. Okay. Um, on, you know, Amazon, Indie Bound, um, Bookstore.com, Bookshop.com, I think.
0: Okay. Um, so. And there has um, been a movie interest in
1: it? You know, when they announced it on PW, I mean, you, you know, when you're going through your career, you know, you're writing your books. You have a certain level of success. You have readers who enjoy your work. And... You know, but you're a certain level. And when this went out on PW uh, Publishers Lunch, my agent got like a million phone calls.
0: Oh, absolutely! Um, you
1: know, <laughs> and you know from foreign rights and and and, and film. So some of me, some of is looking at it now, and that's all I know. And you know, as it should. My, yeah, my agent always says. You cannot take this stuff seriously until you have a contract and a check. So, right. I, I think I think that's good advice.
0: No, it, absolutely. And then another friend of mine, uh, Dana King, he has a, a book that's our series that's being looked at for uh, movie. Publication as well. Oh wow! And you know he he comes into it the same way as that. You know when I'm standing there on the red carpet, I'm standing there on the red carpet. But until then, it's just a nice thought, you know. And uh, he's very grounded as well. So I know that you sound like you're very grounded. But you know the other thing too is um, they had the ability to to test drive the Lindbergh nanny through. Your Prescott books, because, well, she's a maid in a, in a New York family. Uh, where was Charles Lindbergh living at the time, right? Uh,
1: um, think- yeah, he was living in – well, that was an interesting thing because he – they were living in Princeton, New Jersey with her mother most of the time. Mm-hmm. But they were building the house in Englewood. Okay. Uh, but because it wasn't quite finished yet, they only stayed there on the weekends. And on the week, the weekend of the kidnapping, um, Betty had the weekend off and they were supposed to come back Monday, except Charlie had a cold. So Anne said, oh, Anne Morrowindberg said, we're going to we're going to stay over another night. And then she got a cold, So she said, can you come down? Um, we have to stay put in Englewood. And she said, of course. Um, but the question has always been, how would the kidnapper know that the family was in Englewood? Because if you were watching the house, which was fairly remote, you would see that they were never there except on weekends. Right. And that's why the police were convinced that it was either a member of the Lindbergh staff, there were three people who worked for them, or a member of the, uh, the Morrow family staff, Hmm. um, who was in on it with, them.
0: Wow, and not the two dolt's that uh, ended up getting um, arrested, convicted, and one of them uh, executed. Am I right?
1: Yes, Premier Richard Hauptman was uh, was executed uh, right. for the crime.
0: Um, right. Okay. I, I'm
1: being careful in what I say, so as to uh, not give anything away. Of course
0: not. And I'm, and I wasn't trying to bait you in any oh, way. Oh, no, I know. Uh, I know. All right. So, uh, that was our teaser for everyone. You know, the, the book that's going to, uh, become a movie and, <laughs> and you're going to get to wear a, a dress on the, on, on the red uh, carpet, uh, that day. So, uh, no, it, I mean, but think about it. You could have uh just uh laid in the tub fully clothed and went and got a career doing something else. But instead yep. instead you persevered, uh grit and determination. Um you made a pivot with the YA novels, and then from that uh place came um Jane's Jane Prescott's voice calling to you. And then, when and then another pivot yeah and another uh, well, yeah another pivot, but uh now you had some people, you know some people saying, Hey, we really <laughs> want you to do a uh a standalone and they were saying commercially, we think you can make us a lot of money if you write a standalone and let's bat some ideas around and then it came to you and then with that title um and your writing chops, I think oh. they they have a good uh they have a good way to uh a good uh a good bet going on here so uh so the Lindbergh nanny is on pre-order. Let's not forget the Jane Prescott uh, novels. Uh, and then, uh, I know that I'm going to go to the first one because that's what I do. I always like to go to the first one in a series because I like to read from the beginning, you know, what our right. what are, <laughs> what our people are like. And then I'm going to learn a lot about first person past. So, and that's just personal for me, but uh, I want to see how you do it. So anyway, um, is there anything that I f- f- failed to, Ask you that you think is kind of important for my listeners to know.
1: Um, let me think. Yeah, you, you were pretty thorough. Um, you know, I think one thing that I have—I think of writing as an addiction. I mean, it's like my my healthiest addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would do it, you know, if if they didn't pay me. But don't tell Mimitor that. <laughs> um, and I think definitely perseverance is. Key. You know, it, it can take several tries. And I, I think also thinking about the market, it's a tough thing. I didn't think about the market when it came to Jane, um, but um, it, I did see that it could work. I, I did my research and looking at Victoria Thompson and Alyssa Maxwell and saying, okay, like there is a market for this kind of book out there Um, because I know I know a lot of people with historical they choose things that are really really um not I hate to say this on trend right now um and it's very a lot of good books aren't getting published
0: but but on the other hand um the readers that would love Jane just have to be discovered. You just have to match them up, and that's Minotaur's job. Uh, and I hope they're doing it well for you. And you did promise me we would talk about a little bit about this at the end uh, about how 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 did your sales go and whether or not uh, you, yeah. that uh, that thousand book hundred thousand book uh, uh, thing was ever busted. And you could go back to that uh, original publisher and say, No, <laughs> no, actually, it did, buddy. You know,
1: it did. It did. <laughs> you no, know, Jane. Here's here's my th- my thought on that. Jane has not broken through to a hundred thousand copies yet. Okay. However, yeah. But, yeah. yet, yet. Um, however, I am. I have greater hopes for Lindbergh, and my feeling is that because Mimic, I'm very pleased that because Mimic took a chain, Jane stuck with me through Jane. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I obviously want Limber to be a success for myself, but I'd love to see them have a success and reward, you know, that faith that they put in me, which is really nice.
0: And the thing about it is if people read uh, about Betty Gao, it's not going to be a great jump to say, Hey, there's somebody kind of like her back in the same time Mm -hmm. period. And maybe we don't have as an infamous case but i like the the way the writer wrote this and i like the storytelling i like the plot i like the way it came to the end uh maybe i'll take a chance on the other stuff so maybe the new novel standalone will show um readers Lead need
1: they- people to change
0: yes yeah yes. i think so yeah yeah definitely so i'm glad we touched on that at the end and and that's why we didn't forget about it but um you know I, I always like proving those naysayers wrong. In fact, I get a mm-hmm. tremendous motivation <laughs> out of proving naysayers wrong. Sometimes even more than my own energy. You know, I don't. I, it, I, I, go, yeah, I'm sorry, I cut you off there. You were going to say.
1: No, no, I was going to agree with you that you know, thinking of, of Michael Jordan and how. You know, he was not my favorite player because I was a Knicks fan. But he would always, you could tell he would decide somebody on the other team had pissed him off as a motivation for, okay, now I really want to beat you. And sometimes you do have to have that sort of like, I'm going to show you. I mean, you didn't think I could do it. I am going to do it. Energy.
0: Yeah, I, I got hired to handle a a case that was way afield from what I normally do. I mean completely afield from what I did. Hmm. And I was given a short time frame and a very small budget to do it. And what I found out later on was I was hired because uh they wanted me to fail. Really. And my my actual, you know, the people that hired me, that paid the money for me to do the work had a monetary interest in making sure that I did a report that did not find the findings. Because if I found the findings that uh, I was hired to do, it would it would cost them money. And, and I know it sounds weird saying wow. it that way, but it, it was yeah, tr- I No, mean,
1: I believe it totally.
0: And you know what? Um, I worked my ass off on that case. And I went well past their dollar on time and energy. And I even convinced the judge uh, handling that case that, you know, what their true motives were for hiring me. And he, and he agreed with me. (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah.
1: Did you turn that into a novel? Please tell me you did. No,
0: no. What I'm, what I'm going to turn it into someday is a, um, a ambush interview on my, uh, my villain's front step saying, Uh. remember when you hired me, you know, way long time ago? Uh, for the purpose of doing X, well, guess what? I finally did, and here's the information. I just want you to know about it, and, and I'll have a camera crew like standing right over my shoulder because uh, I plan to do it that way. And that's my. That's awesome. And that's like that's like that publisher that says I won't get the hundred thousand. You won't get the hundred thousand sales. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the fact of the matter was uh, that publisher wouldn't know a book that that would get a hundred thousand sales if it bit him on the ass. And I, and I, <laughs> and I say that kind of gruff, you know, and rough, mm-hmm. but if they all had that magic ball, right. right. Then, then, right. you know, come on, give me a break. So how would he absolutely know that that wouldn't sell a hundred thousand? Come on, give me a break. There are, and you know, I love the fact that so many of my authors that I interview have had like 30, 40 rejection letters before, that novel gets sold yes. to a press that just and it blows up. Well, those 30 or 40 other rejections, they didn't know that that was going to be a 100,000 uh copy seller, right? right. So. Right. Anyway. Right. But yeah, I know my uh I'll tell you this story when we get off air. Okay. And, uh, but uh cuz it's still it's still an ongoing case. It's a cold case on my desk. And it's one that I still play with. And believe it or not, I play with it every Easter weekend. Hmm. Uh, I do. I mean, while my wife and my daughter are making a lovely, you know, Easter meal for us, uh-huh. I, d- I pull the dust off of this cold case that I've had around since 2005. And I take, I take fresh eyes on it and I try to look at d- different things that have happened over the course of the year that might, might be able to assist me. And then I, I put out into the universe those things that I need nice. to do. And then, yeah, but eventually, Um, I will find out what, what they didn't want me to find. And I'm, I haven't given up on it. That's how much of a, uh, well, when, when you piss me off, that's what happens. But anyway, so (laughs) enough about me. Anyway, uh, have you, uh, have I covered everything you think, Mariah?
1: I believe so. I mean, unless, if you want me to talk about the book I'm writing now, um, but I think we have covered,
0: yeah. Tell, Um, Tell me about what you're writing now. I don't mind. Yes.
1: Um, I am working on a second standalone, okay. and it is the 1911 murder, true, true story, of David Graham Phillips. Have you ever heard of David no. Graham Phillips? No. David Graham Phillips uh, was the man who caused Teddy Roosevelt to come up with the term muckraker Okay. when he wrote an expose of Senators on the Take –
0: Okay. Um,
1: in 19- and he was murdered outside the Princeton Club near Gramercy Park okay. in uh, 1911. And the person who is going to be the sleuth, sleuth in this particular per- book is Edith Wharton, who was in New York at the time trying to decide if she should leave America, her husband, and her publisher. So okay. it's a return to the Gilded Age for me.
0: Okay. Yeah, that sounds so cool. And uh, Minotaur again.
1: Minotaur again.
0: Yes. Okay. Yes, we have. Well, I thank you very much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. And uh, oh, this is what I have to ask. How can my readers and listeners get in touch with you? How can they reach you?
1: Very good question. They can reach me at mariafredericksbooks.com. dot com. There is a contact link there, mm-hmm. um, and if they would like to reach me, they absolutely should. I love hearing from readers, writers, uh, mystery people. Um, I really like. Uh, I love the back and forth. It's a lonely life, writing. Yeah. So,
0: Maria Mariah Fredericks with an S dot com, and that's your
1: books dot com.
0: Ah, Mariah Fredericks. With an S books.com. Okay. And I, I should know that because it's sitting there on my Chrome tab right now. <laughs> uh, Oi. Anyhow, but thank you for coming on again today. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope I've earned your interest and your time. Our guest next week is Barbara Jean Magnani. She is a uh, Ph.D., M.D., and F.C.A.P., Professor of Anatomic and Clinical Pathology and Medicine and the former Chair of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine, Boston, Massachusetts. She is internationally recognized for her expertise in clinical chemistry and toxology During her career, she received three Outstanding Speaker Awards from the Association for Clinical Chemistry and from the College of American Pathologists Foundation, the 2012 Outstanding Communicator Award, the 2014 Distinguished Patient Care Award, and the 2014 Gene and Gene Herbic Humanitarian Award. Dr. Magnani. Also received the Distinguished Career and Teaching Award from the Tufts University School of Medicine in 2019. In addition, she's been named Top Doctor in Boston Magazine and was included by Castle Connolly and Exceptional Women in Medicine. Dr. Magnani is also named as one of the top 100 most influential laboratory medicine professionals in the world by the pathologist. Dr. Magnani, the former chair of the CAP Toxology Committee and member of the CAP Council on Scientific Affairs has served as a member-at-large of the TDM and Toxology Division of the AACC and as an editor of the Clinical and Forensic Toxology News. Dr. Magnani is also one of the editors of the Clinical Toxology Laboratory, Contemporary Practice of Poisoning Evaluation, 2nd Edition. Her works in fiction include The Lily, uh, Lily Robinson and the Art of Secret Poisoning in Vision Press and Dr. Lily Robinson's series, The Queen of All Poisons, The Poison*, the Power of Poison, and A Message in Poison in Circle Publications. It is my, it'll be my pleasure next week to uh, share with you my conversation with Dr. McDonough. This episode was brought to you by my own FBI agent Marsha O'Shea six book series and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong small town cozy mystery series. To learn more, go to www.johnhoda.com, that's J O H N H O D A.com, and join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marsha O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free.